Singularity. My name is Nicola, aka Socrates, and you're watching Singularity One on One. Singularity One on One is a regular podcast of Singularity Weblog, where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. If you guys enjoy the show, you can help me make it better by liking this video, writing a review on iTunes, leaving a comment on the blog, or simply by making a donation. As always, I will be the man with the questions, and today, the guest with the answers will be Joel Carvalco. Joel is a lawyer with many decades of experience, who once interestingly sued the U.S. government for deserting a POW in Korea. He is also an engineer and inventor with 10 patents in fields spanning from biomedicine and electronics to financial services. He is the author of The Techno-Human Shell, A Jump in the Evolutionary Gap, as well as a jazz pianist and a cyborg himself. So without further ado, hi Joe, I'm so happy to have you on my show. Thank you very much, Nick. Fantastic. And uh, by the way, Joe is one of those uh, very, very interesting people that I had the pleasure of recently meeting in person on one of the conferences that I attended uh, during the month of June. Uh, so uh, I actually enjoyed a, a very nice dinner uh, with uh, Joe and his daughter, who is also a very good lawyer. Uh, and so that's one of the biggest benefits of me being able to attend those events because I can get to meet in person people like Joe and then have the opportunity to invite them in my show so that we can all benefit from it. But anyway, uh, Joe, let me ask you to introduce yourself and what you do in a couple of sentences. All right. Um, well, I, uh, you know, consider myself a lawyer because I obviously am trained as a lawyer. But you know, for about 20 years of my career, I worked as a technologist, uh, as an electrical engineer. My first degree is in electrical engineering, and a lot of that was involved with radar, with artificial intelligence, optical signal processing, those kinds of things. And so when I began a law practice back in 1980, I naturally brought, brought with me uh, that background. Uh, but I wanted to be a trial lawyer. Uh, I didn't want to be a technology lawyer coming out of the uh, out of the bar. So, uh, for the first oh, many years of my career, maybe eight to ten years, I really uh, was a trial lawyer. And uh, I suppose we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, and then in the 90s, I shifted back uh, more heavily into technology and have you know pretty much stayed that way. Uh, in the 2000s, I decided that. Uh, I'd like to author a few books, and uh, I got into some uh, some authoring. Uh, so at this stage in my life, I'm doing some lawyering, doing some technology law, uh, writing some books. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Joe, you have a very unique uh, expertise uh, spanning some fields that are of particular interest to me, from uh, technology but also ethics and law. So those are the topics that I hope to talk to you today about. But I want to start originally with uh, your interest in technology and in law. You said that originally you were an engineer, and only after that you became a lawyer. So is it fair to say then that your interest in technology was preceding your interest in law? Yes, but you know, a lot of things were, a lot of times were brought to a path, okay, through circumstances. Uh, and it's not always, uh, exactly how we may have laid it out if we were doing it sort of theoretically on a drafting board. Uh, and so I came to engineering by way of the Air Force where I joined the Air Force and they put me through a year's worth of technology school, radar in particular, and then I spent five years essentially working in radar with the Air Force. When I came out, naturally, it was easier to get a job working in technology, which I pursued. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then lead us through your life's journey after that. So you went into the Air Force, uh, you got some expertise in radar, you became an engineer after you got discharged or retired from the, from the Air Force. What happened after that? Well, in the uh, in the late 60s and 70s, of course, there was a lot of uh, interest in uh, in the space program, and uh, there was a lot of obvious interest in defense. I went to work for, initially, a company that was doing um, uh, 
they had a project for uh, the lunar orbiter, which was the spacecraft that circumvented the moon to take pictures for where the uh, ultimate landing would take place. And I worked on what was called a V over H sensor, which was an optical system that tracked the moon for purposes of feeding its error signal back into cameras so that they could focus and keep their lenses precisely on target so they could get high-resolution photographs. Uh, and I went from that, okay, to a company called Perkin Elmer, who eventually, incidentally, became the, the company that invented the photolithographic machinery for the modern microcomputers. Mm -hmm. They were also the company that spawned the whole genome project through Solera. Uh, so I worked in their research department, and we were doing artificial intelligence for purposes of trying to identify the five major white blood cell types. Uh, and so essentially what we were doing is collecting metadata on biological substances and then doing statistical analyses to determine how you separate one thing from another. And I, and I think later on in this program, we're going to talk about NSA and metadata, mm -hmm. and I'd like to talk a little bit about how that factors into what we're doing today at the NSA. Perfect. But, That's definitely on my agenda. <laughs> uh, and so I uh, I went from that to uh, uh, another company called um, uh, Pitney Bowes, and Pitney Bowes was in, more involved in doing laser scanning and so forth and so on. And then it was about in the late 70s, I went to law school, and in the 80s, or in fact, 1980, began practicing law. Mm-hmm. Now, as, as an interesting side note, I was just reading yesterday uh, that uh, Stanley Kubrick was uh, one of the guy who purchased uh, two or three of the fastest ever produced Carl Zeiss F0.7 lenses uh, that were uh, originally designed somewhere for the wars in Germany but were eventually adopted by NASA, uh, by NASA for the lunar uh, expeditions. And then Kubrick had the foresight to buy two of them uh, and, of course, they're both very expensive and very rare and use them for uh, some of his movies. Uh, anyway, but uh, your biography shows us that you were sort of at the cutting edge, at the forefront of a number of disciplines kind of from the get-go of your career. From the 50s and 60s, 60s, instantly you were there at the cutting edge. I was lucky. Um, again, you know, things that aren't planned. But uh, when I went to Perkin Elmer, the fellow that I worked for was Kendall Preston, who was a Harvard-educated uh, uh, scientist, physicist, and the other individual was Marcel M. J. E. Golay. And if you look at uh, if you look it up on uh, the internet, you'll dis discover that uh, Golay was one of the leading lights uh, in. Uh, uh, in cryptography in the 20th century and, and some other fields as well, he was quite uh, uh, quite deep in, in, in spectrum in terms of his uh, career. Uh, so I worked with these individuals who were uh, at that time developing a whole new geometry for topological analysis. Uh, and so that's uh, what brought me to the artificial intelligence. It was it was through their um, their interest in what they were doing, and I was fortunate enough to be chosen as one of their research associates at the time. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. So you kind of switched careers in the late 70s and early 80s from sort of a cutting-edge engineer to criminal lawyer, uh, or not criminal lawyer, but uh, how did you put it? Uh, Litigation lawyer. Litigation yeah. lawyer. Or trial and lawyer, sure. Trial lawyer, yes, yeah. thank you. Yeah. So tell us, uh, and I know uh, you wrote a, a very interesting book uh, called uh, We Were Beautiful Once, uh, and parts of it, of the experience of that book, uh, were eventually used uh, for a documentary film called Missing Presumed Death, The, the Search for America's POWs. Can you tell us a little bit of that experience and sort of the courage that it took for you to try and sue the U.S. government for deserting a POW in Korea? Well, I think, you know, you, you come at these things again, uh, not as a lone wolf, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but, but sometimes, you know, you're, um, uh, you're, you're tapped. Uh, you know, by uh, by circumstance, to to engage in a in a particular uh, uh, event or particular course of action. In this instance, there was a there was a family that had lost a 
a, a son uh, and a brother, okay, in Korea, and uh, and they were not satisfied with the answer that they had gotten back from the government that he was simply missing in action, couldn't be found. And so one of the brothers went to the archives in Washington, D.C. in the late 1970s and discovered that uh, in the archives there was something to the effect that the name of their brother was mentioned by prisoners of war who were, who were returning through Panmunjom at the end of the Korean War during the arm, when the armistice had been signed. And they... Uh, would mention his name as being a POW. The army, so this uh, family went back to the army and asked, you know, can you tell us more about it? And the army was quite dismissive with this family, saying, look, you know, get out of our hair. You know, this happened uh, 30 years ago, and we're not interested in resurrecting or opening up the subject. And so because they couldn't get an answer as to what the true status of their brother was, in this case, it was one of the brothers that, uh, ended up retaining me, um, essentially uh, had no option but to sue the Secretary of Defense and the President of the United States. At least that was my opinion, which is the which is the uh, the track we went on. Uh, it was uh, obviously tenuous because uh, you were dealing with uh, the propriety of the U.S. government, and in most instances, the government is believed to be right. Uh, and you have to overcome a burden of, uh, of a prima facie case, which we were able to make and base and sustain the early motions to dismiss. We were able to stay in federal court. It eventually led to a trial. Uh, what happened between the uh, time the suit was initiated and the trial, of course, is a story in and of itself because it not only began to exercise the Secretary of Defense and the Army, but also the CIA and other agencies of the government who were intent on dismissing the case as being um, improvidently granted or uh, simply without foundation or basis. And we were obviously getting closer and closer and closer to some very delicate things that they were attempting to keep under wraps or, in some cases, in my opinion, subvert. Mm -hmm. So now you stressed the, the sort of luck end of things and how we sort of stumble into, you know, opportunities in life. But I want to stress that, you know, this is clearly a David versus Goliath kind of a fight. And most of us perhaps would have chosen not to take on it. So the fact that you chose to, to take on, on such a, a, an adversary like the U.S. government and specifically the U.S. Secretary of Defense and even the President, I mean, speaks volume for you. So let me ask you, did you actually think that you can win? Well... You know, I, I, that's a good question. I don't think I, I, I had, let, let me say, let me put you back to, to that time in my life and give you some sense of, of my, um, uh, my, my, my physiological reaction to the case. I walked into the courtroom on the day of trial and it was, uh, filled with reporters from, uh, the New York Times, from CBS, NBC. I mean, it was quite well, uh, publicized that this trial would take place. And so consequently, a good part of the courtroom was filled with, veterans advocates and also with the press. Uh, I have to admit that, you know, when you stand up before a federal judge and he announces the case and go forward, uh, I can't say that uh, there wasn't a, a, a certain a nervous nervousness, almost panic uh, that takes hold of you. But then when you begin to sort of announce the fact that you'd like to call uh, your first witness, much of that sort of dissipates. And now you're in the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you're focused and much of that goes away. And I think the idea that you're suing the president and the secretary of defense as well kind of goes away because you're now, you know, you have a job to do. You're in the thick of things. You're in the thick of battle. Mm -hmm. and, and, and who you're fighting against really becomes as, you know, sort of a non, uh, non sequitur. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So what did you learn from that? you know, monumental experience that very few lawyers actually have in their career. <laughs> and you, again, just like with your engineering career, starting at sort of the cutting edge, the forefront of technology, your lawyer career, it seems to me, almost started <laughs> the very, <laughs> like, going as, as, or attempting to go as high as possible in a way. 
Well, yeah. Again, I'd only been out of uh, law school for about three years uh, when I tried this case. So I was rather new to the profession and I was learning as I was going along. Um, but, you know, that's true even for for the men we unfortunately have to send to war. Oftentimes they're 18, 19 year old kids. They're learning as they sort of go forward. So, you know, much of these things are ne- are not necessarily done by by lawyers who are at the top of their profession. But frankly, lawyers who are uh, who in some cases don't know. Uh, enough to say no, right? They, yeah. Or naive enough that they <laughs> can win, to think they, they can, can win. win. Yeah, that's right. Naive enough so that they think they could win. Uh, so in this instance, uh, what, what did I, what did I learn from this? Number one, that yes, the United States government is vulnerable. And two, I didn't realize how, uh, ferocious, okay, they could be, okay, against, uh, you know, their own people, okay, when it comes to something that is a matter of, of, of truth and in my estimation, the record was rather clear. Um, mm-hmm. Why, you know, the government uh, refused in this case to admit or to concede the fact that he was a POW has always remained a mystery. I've fashioned over the course of the last 30 years my own uh, views as to perhaps what might be going on, but there's a lot that we don't know about, and so they're always afraid that there's some breach in the dam, some hole that they can't plug, mm-hmm. and it will force their hand in terms of disclosing what probably should be disclosed uh, uh, to the people that it represents. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would come back to the topic of sort of holes in the dam and, and trying to breach the holes a little bit later. But I want to move on our discussion from that part of your life forward. And again, I want to uh, say that it was a fascinating uh, feature of your biography, and I'd recommend to people that they go and check out your book called uh, We Were Beautiful Once, Chapters in a Cold War. Uh, now, moving forward, let me ask you this. I know that at some point later, much later in your life, you eventually became a cyborg. Uh, and you wrote this interesting book that I've been reading for the past couple of days called The Techno-Human Shell. Which one was first? Was the book first or becoming cyborg? No, becoming a cyborg was first. Can you tell us that story perhaps and, and, and perhaps the journey that eventually led you from that moment, critical moment of your life to writing a book on the topic? Well, I was, uh, it was a Sunday evening and I was ready to prepare myself for bed when I suddenly became dizzy. I got up and I shouted to my wife that I thought I was passing out. But I also knew that there was something more uh, deep uh, going on with my, uh, my anatomy. It was, it was failing uh, in, in such a way that it was, uh, it was probably fatal. Uh, I ended up having what's called a triple heart block. My, my heart essentially stopped beating because I lost all conduction, all electrical conduction. For reasons that are still unclear, they thought maybe it was Lyme disease or something along those lines, but that's irrelevant. Uh, Again, I was fortunate that my son was in the house, and he's a mountain climber, and he knows a lot about uh, CPR and so forth, and so he kept me alive until they were able to, six hours later, give me me a pacemaker, which I now wear. Mm -hmm. So it was sometime after... Shortly after that, I began to sort of under, you know, contemplate the fact that I had this pacemaker, and especially when I went to my doctor, uh, and I could see that he was manipulating my heartbeat from a distance. So obviously, <laughs> I had, a, I have a tele, uh, have a communication device in the pacemaker, and he's able to basically Bluetooth into my pacemaker and make adjustments as I go along. So, I had received a very over the last couple of years, actually, two or three patents uh, having to do with, uh, for myself, uh, that I had uh, invented a system for a financial services company to incorporate computers into every nook and cranny, every interstice in automobiles and and buildings for purposes of insurance companies sort of trying to figure out what the stresses on these buildings or their uh, insured insurable interests were mm-hmm. uh, and and then I began to think, well, you know it's only a matter of time before science and engineering begin incorporating these kinds of computers into the human body uh, and i then I said to myself, in fact, I've got one, 
Um, and so, I, so I began to research the subject of, of, you know, where are we with regards to technology and the kind of technology that over the next 5, 10, 20, 30 years could be feasibly incorporated in the human body for purposes very much like the patents that I had granted, had been granted, uh, for, you know, things outside the body. Mm-hmm. Cars uh, and buildings. Yeah, cars and buildings. And so that's pretty much what formed the the genesis of my idea for uh, doing the research and then writing a book about uh, the state of the art. Uh, and then from the state of the art, uh, what are the legal implications? What are the and then what are the moral implications? Mm-hmm. Uh, so let me ask you this: uh, How did you feel, and were you shocked to discover that? the doctor is actually able to Bluetooth and remotely set your heart rate. Uh, and how did that feel? Did that feel like a sort of a violation of some kind, like losing autonomy over your own heartbeat in a way? Absolutely. Uh, and and it, was, it was shocking because I didn't know that he had that capa- capability. And so I was laying down uh, uh, in his office, and he began to dial down my heart rate uh, to the point where he wanted to see if I had any intrinsic heartbeat, which I apparently don't have. But, of course, he has to find out. So he essentially killed wow. me, you know, for a very brief moment. He basically wow. put, you know, put me out of heartbeats uh, and then brought me back. And the feeling, of course, is obviously physiological. It's frightening. Uh, and you have no control over it. Um, and so one of the things that concerned me at that time was what if there was a computer crash at that moment, if there were a virus? And then I carried that to the next, you know, in my book at least, I begin to explore, well, what happens when large numbers of people within the society become sort of dependent on um, these prescriptions, okay, that are really silicone prescriptions put into the body, uh, and there's the opportunity for hackers, you know, to hack into the body or mm-hmm. to do what they do. Mm-hmm. So let me get this straight now. Does that mean that you're practically sustained to be alive by this pacer right now? Because inherently you do not have an autonomous heartbeat on your own right now. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I wasn't aware of that. I, I just thought that that pacers, uh, pacemakers basically regulate the beats in the case when you have some kind of an irregularity, so they put it back on track, but the tempo in a way, but but not really sustaining the beat. That's amazing. Yeah, for me it's different. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So so then, tell us a little bit more about the the book. What is the Technohuman Shell all about, and what's well, your your goal? What what do you want to achieve with that book? Well, I, I want to. Uh, I, I had written it, and not so much for the scientist, uh, but for the educated uh, reader, uh, someone who wasn't afraid to sort of you know see technical terms uh, uh, in front of them. But uh, but essentially, it's written you know for as I say for the educated reader who could appreciate where we're at and where we we will be going, uh, at least in my own mind, uh, and what are the legal, as I said before, and moral implications. So uh, what I've done is I I begin by uh, outlining uh, essentially, you know, where we are and such organizations as you belong to Singularity, for instance, .org and and the like, uh, they're fully aware of the Kurzweil kinds of individuals and much and persons like yourself uh, are pretty much up to date as to what's going on in technology and the technology of cyborgs. Um, so, but I do cover that uh, this period that we're in, okay, for the for the reader to orient them as to where they are. And then what I do is I take. The, the body uh, anatomically, I take the brain, I take the eye, I take various parts of it, and I explain what the current technology, what the current research is, where it's going with respect to these things. So, for instance, they're using pacemaker technology now to uh, to intervene for depression, and mm-hmm. so they, they can de- put deep probes. Deep brain stimulation. Deep, exactly, deep brain stimulation. There are 25 different applications for these kinds of, of stimulators within the human anatomy. Uh, 
but it's not just uh, the pacemaker type of thing. There are other devices as well that, that have specializations. Uh, so we were talking, you know, the book basically addresses uh, addresses these various technologies. Then I take it one step further, and I begin to look at the new technology of genomic engineering, genetic engineering, of the kind that Ventner uh, is involved in. So uh, we're looking at now doing synthetic DNA, for instance, and that eventually, and not only eventually, they're already beginning to deter, discover that they can build in, com they can make computers, okay, through DNA, and so that eventually, because uh, the silicon computers, as we know, have a particular size, and they're going to diminish, uh, they're going to reach their peak in terms of their operations per second and their size, that we'll have to eventually re uh, transition over to molecular computers and eventually DNA computers. But, you know, that's just a matter of hardware. Uh, the scientists will eventually get there. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the third topic I talk about, which I think is rather fascinating and, and maybe a little bit off the chart, is I begin to see that uh, there's there's something as as we refer we refer to as MEMS right and you're familiar with the term which which essentially is a way of saying you know this is the way culture uh, essentially transmits itself through the human organism uh, memes we, we, I think memes I'm sorry yeah yeah memes uh, uh, and I basically begin to to go out and and begin to think about teams uh, almost like memes or teams T E M E S uh, that uh, essentially are Technological uh, uh, analogs to memes. Okay, that that once teams are in our body, in other words, it, by way of technology, they will have the capacity to reproduce themselves. Uh, and so I do talk about uh, Turing machines. I talk about um, von Neumann and his uh, uh, theories of, of of reproducible machinery, and how once we get incorporate this kind of machinery within the human organism, that there will come a day. When autonomously these things will, according to the programmed, according to the designer that designed these things, will have the capacity on their own to recreate and to uh, self-regulate uh, the various uh, anatomical functions within the body. So I talk, I talk about that. And then finally I get into the legal implications in terms of the, the more things that are obviously apparent, the, the warranty issues, the uh, intellectual property issues. For instance, who owns the program? Well, normally when in this we're talking, I'm speaking to you today on licensed software, right? Skype or my computer's all licensed. There's nothing here that I own outright. Uh, it's all licensable. And so the software that's in my pacemaker today is not owned by me. It's owned by Medtronics. I don't own it. I'm basically a licensed, uh, you know, artifact of a of a corporation who may decide they want to update it or may decide they don't. Let me stop you right here uh, because I remember uh, overhearing and and I, I sort of uh, the details are escaping me right now. But I remember one of your one of your fellow uh, people uh, 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 patients who is also using a pacemaker uh, sent a request to the manufacturer uh, to receive his heart's data, uh, and they refused it to him on the basis that it's a proprietary information owned by the company. So, in other words, the data about his own heartbeat was not his own property, and he didn't even have access to it. He didn't even have the ability to share in the knowledge or usage thereof. That's right. And I think that that's, you know, that's that's something that some young lawyer is going to have to litigate <laughs> uh, because, uh, you know, we we face these insurmountable obstacles and it's it's not apparent uh, just how much we're giving up uh, at, at this very early stage of this new technology. Mm -hmm. So do you think that uh, that data should be shared between the manufacturer and the patient or should it be owned outright by the patient? It should be owned by the patient. Uh, we should have open source on the software, mm -hmm. right? And any manufacturer, any other software, responsible software programmer should be able to develop and to advance the science, albeit, in this case, perhaps regulated to some extent because we can't have everybody who's 
picking up a, uh, a computer, you know, working off a, off a small program, develop this stuff without it being properly vetted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just for, for our audience, uh, I would say that uh, I've been impressed by the sort of the amount of research and, and references that you have uh, uh, in your book, uh, and I would highly recommend it to, to everyone interested in the topics that you just uh, listed. Uh, I was very impressed by it, but now upon reflection, given your uh, sort of past in, in engineering and your long-standing career in law, like I think it, it all kind of comes together and makes very good sense now. How, why is it so, so thoroughly vetted and researched? But let me ask you this. How does it feel to be called a cyborg? Is it right to be, for you to be called such? I don't, I think it's inevitable. Uh, because I, you know, I, I, you know, perhaps, uh, I don't think it has the, um, uh, the negative connotation that, for, for instance, someone might be called drug addicted, mm -hmm. uh, because they're dependent on drugs. So we haven't reached that point, uh, uh, of this, of it being a disparaging, uh, uh, uh moniker. Mm -hmm. uh, so I have uh, no problem with the word, no. Mm -hmm. I see. And then, uh, We've also mentioned uh, copyright and, and patents. Let me try and dive a little bit deeper in, on both of those issues. So first of all, generally speaking, if we are to make a generalization, would you say that the patenting system that we have today in North America and the U.S. Uh, is one that sort of creates incentives for progress or one that holds progress back? Um, I think a lot is, I think almost too much sometimes is made uh, of how the patent system uh, actually thwarts uh, an inventor's ability to make progress. Uh, I've been a patent lawyer, you know, from the very beginning. I took my patent bar and, and have practiced in the field uh, for a good part of my career. And so, Representing inventors and representing uh, on both sides, um, I've really come away with the idea that um, the fertile mind is really not going to be not going to be stopped or inhibited uh, by the patent system. Uh, they're going to figure a way around it. I have to admit that there's practically no patent that I've seen out there that I didn't feel some. And maybe this is bravado, but that it couldn't be designed around. Um, and the, some of the very significant patents, um, um, I, I think, well, let me back off a minute. I think that there is, however, this, I, this aspect of patent law that stands in the way of equity, that stands in the way of doing the decent thing, and companies will hide behind it. So I don't think it's the idea of patenting per se that does this. I think it's the interests that stand behind these patents and try to scare off uh, others in the in the field. And sometimes the patents are interpreted in such a way that companies feel almost confident, okay, that they could go ahead and use them as a anti-competitive tool. The Myriad case, for instance, is, is, a, is a significant example. This is the case for those of, and I, I know you know what it's about, uh, but this is a case for the, your, for your listeners, uh, involving the BRCA genes, the genes that are used to detect cancer of the breast in women. Uh, Myriad ha held patents, okay, that essentially claimed that it, um, uh, that, 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 that it, it claimed the gene that was necessarily, necessarily implicated, uh, in the detection of the cancer. Uh, we're, you know, we're sort of at the, still at the very beginning, okay, of bioengineered patents. Uh, the patent office improvidently granted them a patent on this. The Supreme Court recently said, no, you can't patent genes. Mm -hmm. All right. So, so yes, there, there are these obstacles and these barriers. Um, that that we're going to continue to sort of run up against with respect to patent law, but hopefully with through our court system, uh, through pressures brought on by in this case many groups, the ACLU, various women's groups, various 
uh, physician groups that we can overcome things within the patent law that, frankly, are are patently um, uh, outside the bounds, okay, of what should be patented. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I want to dive deeper into that that case that, as you just mentioned, went all the way to the Supreme Court and, and is going to have repercussions for many years to come, perhaps. Um, so, first of all, lay out for us what are the stakes here. Well, the stakes from the from the man, from the developer or or from the from the drug company or the bioengineering company's standpoint point of view is we've invested you know millions or billions of dollars in research and therefore we should be the ones who are given lead time uh, to exploit uh, the inventions sufficient to uh, recoup our investment so that that's where they come out in the best case (laughs) on the on the on the other side of the coin is that they oftentimes involve themselves or get involved uh and and try to push the boundaries of of the of patent law to the extent where they begin to uh attempt to patent things that have for two or three centuries uh been off the table so for instance uh, uh, um, abstract ideas, which are mathematical ideas, or uh, uh, products of nature, okay, that uh, are and have been uh, uh, not qualified for monopolization through the patenting system. Uh, so that's the other side of things. So we have these two forces uh, working uh, at loggerheads. These big companies, and they are they're huge. Uh, that are that are attempting to encroach uh, in areas of patent law that have been essentially out of bounds or off, you know, uh, not not within the boundaries of uh, of fair patenting. Um, we ask, you know, why are we simply why are we seeing this today and we didn't see it 30 years ago? And it's partly, obviously, as a consequence of new technology. And in many times. Um, let me give you an analogy. There was a time when patents were only granted for things that had material tangibility, mm-hmm. you know, iron, steel, uh, knives. Um, you know, they were they were made of stuff. Okay, but uh, we're you know within in the age of of programming and in the age of um, of business methods where we've allowed some of the patents to invade or to begin to invade things without tangibility. So now we can patent a business method. Well, a business method doesn't have anything that's tangible. It is a social construction. Mm-hmm. All right. So we've, we're dealing with the matter of social reality. Uh, and so, you know, we have courts that in some cases, and pro, you know, again, in my estimation, um, overstepping uh, what is intended by patent laws, but they'll allow something to be defined, and then they'll allow the rules which define it to define it, uh, and then they'll proclaim that this thing is a uh, is a business method because it has uh, certain uh, qualifications. Certain uh, when in fact, when you look behind the curtain, it's it's nothing but an idea. That if all humans were suddenly uh, 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 disappeared from the earth, this thing wouldn't exist anymore. <laughs> right? When that's not the way patents used to be. Patents were such that if everybody disappeared, the very thing would still exist. It may not have the same social construction. A knife, a book, for instance, is only a book because we call it a book. Some people may use it to start a fire, mm-hmm. right? In which case, it's 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 a fire starter. Yeah. Uh, but it still exists. But mm-hmm. not so for things of, uh, of social construction. Let me talk a little bit more about. Let me ask you to talk a little bit more about the the general social implications, not the specific stakes of the case, because it seems to me I, I've seen a number of interviews with cancer researchers and scientists uh, in the field who have commented that they have felt bullied uh, by the company owning that patent uh, and being afraid to publish research which can be perhaps claimed to have used or potentially have used parts of their genes uh, and, and therefore they're risking their reputation, uh, they're risking their future career, they're risking being sued by a huge rich uh, company uh, and thereby they are withholding uh, research uh, in the field. Yeah. 
Um, you know, as uh, you know, and you're, this is the, the point I think you're you're getting to, um, and and frankly has been uh, well uh, uh, pointed out, I guess, or discussed by by Lawrence Lessig. Uh, who's a, uh, a lawyer who was with Stanford, I think. Now he's up at Harvard. Uh, that, uh, you know, we keep uh, expanding the copyright laws, expanding the trade secret laws to such an extent right, that we're creating a society where it's becoming increasingly more risky uh, for scientists and for individuals to discuss the, the fruits of their research. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only way that research is to progress, the only way science is to progress, the only way we make progress is by sharing ideas. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, you know, we have to begin to, uh, again, you know, big corporations, I hate to say it, but we all know, have phenomenal leverage, you know, over the, uh, over the uh, levers of government. And so consequently, things tend to fall in their favor, and we've simply got to continue to push back. But that's why my original uh, question was whether patents help or hurt progress, because, as you just said, science is cumulative in nature, right? We all should be standing, or every inventor, every researcher who ever had any novel idea stands on the shoulders of giants. So if you put those sort of locked doors uh, or gatekeepers uh, or, or even secrecy uh, behind which you're hiding the research, then that cumulative process is, is destroyed, right? So, so that's why we're going back to the original question. Do patents help or hurt? Well, let me just add one little point uh, to, the, to the patenting and what the, what the motivation was by... By those that uh, crafted or drafted the Constitution, because it's in it's in the U.S. Constitution anyway, as 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 part of a constitutional uh, right. Uh, They were saying to themselves, in exchange for full disclosure, rather than keeping things secret, trade secret, we will give you a short-term monopoly. And it used to be 17 years. In some some cases, it was even shorter. We're now extending that time. Yeah. All right. So, so there was, there's, there's a public policy, okay, that basically says, tell us what you have and we'll allow you to monopolize it. And so in some ways, it works in favor of progress because we can read what people are doing. And part of the law requires that you make full disclosure. And many times patents are struck down because they're hiding something. They don't tell all, which, which is what they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. So there's that side of it that we can't ignore. That if there was no patent system, that it may lead to a, t- a may lead companies to then become more secretive about what they're doing. And I understand that theory, but in reality, as you said, first there's a trend for extending the period, and and, and secondly, say 20 years and more is a huge amount of time in terms of technological progress. Right? We are talking many generations of changes that would come for those two decades. Uh, and 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 therefore, by the time that those patents go to be in the, in the public sphere, uh, they would be most likely useless or would be holding progress for 20 years, which is a very long time nowadays. Excellent point. I think what the patent uh, uh, patent law today is pretty much based on a society of 200 years ago or 100 years ago. It's certainly not based. Yeah in the 21st century, because things are moving so quickly, uh, a 20-year patent is ridiculous. Yeah, so so, so I, I would say to me, to, to like the ignorant me in terms of laws, I, I would probably say I, I would be willing to, to sort of entertain like five or seven-year period, but but even a decade seems to be too long for me. No, I think you're right on. Uh, you know, for some years ago, I used to uh, uh, work uh, for a company that uh, did licensing in places like India, for instance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and India's, you know, intellectual property laws were such that after five years, it your technology reverted to the Indian partner mm-hmm. um, for for the reasons you're mentioning. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it was only an equity fair. Yeah. 
Okay, so uh, let me give you another case, uh, by the way. Um, I had the pleasure of interviewing Jack Andreka, uh, who was this uh, miracle kid that invented uh, uh, pancreatic cancer test uh, a couple of years ago at, at the age of 14 and a half or 15 years old. Now, his biggest disappointment was the fact that he invented this test so that he can save people's lives now. And the the biggest disappointment that he shared with me during the interview was that when he started the whole process, his intellectual property lawyer told him that if he's lucky, he would see it on the market within five years and more likely within ten years. Now imagine how many people's lives that could save in the meantime, in the interim. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think, again, it's a matter of, of uh, public policy to ensure that, you know, we can accelerate certain kinds of, of technologies or certain kinds of research uh, so that they're fully well tested and safe um, and efficacy is proven. Um, but we can't treat everything in the same way. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you, let's go back to, to that Supreme Court decision and and, and let me ask you this. You said that the Supreme Court decided that you cannot patent genes, but was it not more accurate to say that the decision was that you're not allowed to patent human genes? Uh, that's a good question, uh, but I don't think that that is that narrow, um, mm-hmm. because I think the genes, uh, whether they're human or they're from some other species, uh, would matter. This, the question is whether it's a product of nature or something that has been created through the hand of, they call it the hand of man. So, so for instance, uh, if Ventner invented a, a, had a gene, a human gene, and were to insert an extra uh, chromosome, an extra chromosome, exactly, or uh, the gene itself, there were extra amino acids or some 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 other codon, mm-hmm. then I think uh, you just uh, he might well have a gene that's patentable. And wouldn't that kind of a decision also have huge implications for the future? Of course, yeah, it may have, in fact, similar implications because, you know, he it, let's say hypothetically it was used to cure brain cancer, mm-hmm. uh, they could monopolize the test for brain cancer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So what do you think, uh, generally speaking, about that Supreme Court decision? And, and you know, uh, perhaps the, the process that it was arrived at and, and the future uh, attitude from young, naive lawyers that think that we can win what 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 would you want to say about that? Well, again, uh, this one here was uh, s- significantly more complex than my case against the government because mm-hmm. uh, it in, it involved uh, a, it involved science and it involved experts and involved um, the case you know was was significantly and vociferously fought okay at every every stage. Um, so I, I think that there's it's, it's hard to compare the two. Um, and patent cases, as uh, we know, are the most expensive cases to litigate. Mm-hmm. This a case like this is probably, and I'm just throwing a figure out there. You were probably talking fifty or hundred million dollars to litigate this case. Mm-hmm. All right. So, so a sole uh, uh, practitioner like myself, in, the, in case suing the government, mm-hmm. um, could not possibly, uh, you know, have success have succeeded, honestly, mm-hmm. uh, against a large corporation with a hundred, maybe 50 to 100 lawyers uh, to face down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. <clears throat> so that's even more David against Goliath than, than you <laughs> had to deal with. Yeah, it would be, yeah, be a whole army. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Joe, uh, it's very interesting talking to you, but I want to move on to another topic here and want to ask you to comment a little bit about it because – to somebody again who is ignorant as me, uh, from uh, or who lacks any sort of legal training, please tell me if I'm wrong to say that to me, it is pretty clear or pretty apparent that government spying programs like the recent ones revealed by Edward Snowden's leaks, uh, the Prism program, for example, 
are absolutely illegal. Uh, is, that, no... is that a yeah. fair claim to make or, or is that, you know, or is, are there any sort of intricacies or, or am I missing something? I don't think you're missing anything. I mean, I I come from the standpoint that it, they're absolutely illegal. There's no question. And that, again, you know, the, the, the government wages a propaganda war. And in this case, that's what you're seeing here is because, you know, they throw out a word like, well, it's only metadata. Okay? <laughs> I mean, uh, 300 million people in this country don't know what metadata is from, you know, from any other crazy word that you make up. Right. And, and throw them, throw out there. So they have no concept of what it is. Unfortunately, the people that uh, we elect to government that represent us don't know either. Right. Um, and so until uh, the, pop, the, 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 the public or and certainly our representatives um, become aware and, and even our court systems become more aware of the um, of the nature the the science and the engineering nature okay of what's going on here uh they can't begin to understand how it is that it's begin it, that it, it it totally and completely infringes on uh what i consider the 4th amendment so and and other amendments is within the us constitution uh mm-hmm. or it could be the 6th or 7th amendment as well so for instance you know i speak to clients all the time uh, on the telephone, right? And they tell me things that, frankly, only they and I should should know. Mm-hmm. Um, but the government is obviously listening in through what's called metadata. Well, mm-hmm. what's metadata? Metadata is nothing but more than a lexicon of the words that I'm using in that conversation. And so if the word drug is used, it gets put into the dictionary. If the word uh, uh Secret is used; it gets put into the dictionary. So now they've got a whole—they have a little dictionary of words that were going that were pertinent to that conversation, and now that can that that can trigger, uh, obviously, a, uh, an, a, a, a another program that will now look at that particular phone record. Mm-hmm. So I mean that—that's what made it, metadata is. It's it's a lexicon of words that are used in a conversation, and those words now. Once they flow over the, they they go beyond a certain point or, or a tipping point, they then spawn a particular activity or action. We just learned this past week, and that they're using it here for, for drug busts, and they're using it for other criminal. They're activities. sharing the data from sharing the, the data. NSA with other agencies who are lining up to to file requests for it. That's right. <laughs> so so let me ask you something else here then on that. Uh, by the way, I just recently interviewed Dr. Anne Kavukian, who is the Privacy Commissioner uh, of the Province of Ontario here in Canada, and and she says that very clearly that metadata is actually much more important and much more valuable, quite often than the content of any specific uh, phone conversation. Uh, but um, let me ask you on another legal point here. You know. Uh, You've mentioned the Fourth Amendment, but can we not get those people for lying or, 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 or filing a false testimony in front of uh, Congress hearing committees and stuff? For example, the, the NSA head, General uh, Alexander, has stated on numerous occasions on the public record and sometimes under oath in Congress, I think, that the U.S. government does not spy on its citizens. Can we not get people like that for filing a false testimony or something, lying under oath? Well, and here's the, I mean, here's the dilemma. Uh, the ones that could file such a uh, claim would be Congress itself, right? They can hold people in contempt. Uh-huh. They could initiate an action, okay, to the, refer to the Justice Department. But this they're is, not doing it. <laughs> but they're not doing it. So, you know, in, in some sense, uh, this is what corruption is about. Right? It's not necessarily a few people operating in secret behind a closed door that plan okay, and organize to do something illegal. Sometimes it's in full view of us. When a government stands there or sits there and doesn't do the right thing, that refuses is a form of action. refuses. That's a form of corruption. Yeah, I agree. I, I absolutely, absolutely agree with you. So what are we to do? What are we to do? You said that we can't file because the plaintiff has to be the U.S. Congress only, right? right. That's right. So it's not like you or, or some other Don Quixote lawyer who decides that they can fight 
you know, Goliath on that issue. So what are we to do? Well, you know, we always say we live in a democracy and we have to basically use the political, our political will, you know, to put people in Congress. And we've done that in other times in our, um, in our, in the U.S. history and other government histories as well. You know, certainly what came out of, of the 1970s, for instance, there was a, something called the Church Commission. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, it takes good people. It takes honest politicians to even consider putting commissions like that together that will then change the laws regarding, you know, the CIA and regarding, you know, other clandestine activities of the government. Right now, I don't see that, uh, that, that, uh, courage coming out of the current, uh, uh, Congress. Uh, but time will tell. If it doesn't, then of course, you know, we're in for a very, very dark, uh, period, I think, in our, uh, in our future. Mm-hmm. Well, let me move on to, to another topic here because time is advancing, unfortunately, even though I'm enjoying our conversation immensely. But, uh, what do you think of the Turing test? Um, well, you know, I, I read, John Searle, uh, who is a, a social philosopher, you know, has, um, you know, well sort of um, explained, discussed, analyzed um, uh, the Turing test. And I'm, I'm assuming that your, think your, your question really has to do with whether computers will eventually mimic uh, the human. Uh, the human uh, yes, and, and my follow-up to that is like, can we use it as a legal test to grant personhood on on artificial intelligences yeah 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 um and i think that and this this again is putting me way out into the future um but if i follow my premise through okay where uh, a century from now we will all be cyborgs because it'll our lives to live two or three hundred years our lives will depend Mm -hmm. to a great extent you know on an artificial anatomy. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you keep extending that further and further, at what point do you sort of erase the um, uh, the, um, the the more natural or anatomical uh, elements that uh, uh, ex- within with which sustains us today, and are replaced by something which is completely and totally artificial? So, for instance, artificial genes totally and completely replacing. At that point, I think there's no distinction between you know, what we might think of a human or what we might think of uh, as, a, uh, as a complete and total cyborg, okay, both of which would deserve uh, 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 citizenship, both of which would deserve uh, the same status. Mm-hmm. Because they couldn't be told apart. Yeah, but you're to- sort of taking the path here of, human augmentation and augmenting human intelligence to the cyborg level and uh, what about the other path of, 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 of creating artificial intelligence through uh, you know software and hardware that doesn't have any continuity with the human software and hardware but is sort of based on microprocessing power Moore's law and some kind of perhaps whole brain emulation or simulation, perhaps some other software organization of the bits, which creates this emergent intelligence. I'm not sure that we would, um, at least I wouldn't, consider that personhood in the way we consider ourselves. It, mm-hmm. it, it may nonetheless you know, be uh, warranted that we treat it with a certain uh, dignity, uh, that we is dignity, you know, mm-hmm. that we... That mm-hmm. we we accorded various um, uh, uh, rights or other things that you know we accord one another as as humans or even animals for that matter, but it would be I think a different uh, artifact. It would be something uh, you know outside of what we now consider humans. But wouldn't it deserve to have I don't know artificial intelligence rights? And wouldn't we have to expand the concept of human rights to not be so biocentric or species-centric as it is right now for only quote-unquote humans and expand it? I mean, before that, it was men pretty much, you know. Right. When you said human rights, you, you really meant a couple hundred years ago, you meant 
men's rights, right? Then eventually we expanded those rights to women so they can own property, they can vote, and they can do a bunch of other things, right? Isn't it time, wouldn't it be time at some point soon to expand that to include artificial intelligence rights? In other words, to say that the substrate is not the determining factor, but it's the intelligence. Well, let me ask you this. Um, are we talking about an autonomous uh, yes. artificial intelligence, you know, and I think that makes the difference because if it were autonomous, uh, then I think the answer is probably going to be yes, because, because, you know, it's, it's in my own sense of things, the universe being what it is, there's probably this, this sort of exists somewhere. Mm -hmm. But when you say autonomous, that's a very sort of tricky word in a way, right? Because are we autonomous beings? I mean, we are living in a system, in a system, political system, social system, economic, legal system, our biosystem, biosphere, etc. I mean, those entities, say they arise on the internet or something like that, they would be living in a system. So would, would, would that make them autonomous or not? So it, it's <laughs> very much about how you define autonomy here, right? If you create yeah, an no, artificial I, I, intelligence which is held in a, in, a, in a building somewhere, in a supercomputer, would that no, make it autonomous? Well, you're right. It's a, it's a brain in a vat, right? <laughs> so, you know, if it were a brain in a vat, um, you know, would that be, um, would we accord personhood to it? Um, and, and perhaps I don't have a, a clear picture uh, in my mind as to what all of the considerations would have to be uh, for that. And I think partly is because I, I do think that there's something, and perhaps it has the qualities. If it had every quality that you and I uh, have at the very, this very moment, that quality of, of empathy, compassion, uh, courage, um, sustainability, all of those things, okay, wrapped up, okay, in this entity, uh, then perhaps we might say yes, because it would be indistinguishable from us, except for the body that we, uh, we, we carry all of these qualities within. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so how much, um, um, you know, how much sanctity or how much uh, do we give, uh, to the mere fact that we have a body? Mm -hmm. Uh, and is, is our real essence uh, that which exists, you know, within our spirit, uh, within that thing that is, you know, part of our consciousness and perhaps separate and apart from that thing which uh, we, we carry that consciousness within? Mm -hmm. Well, Nick Bostrom has argued that, you know, speciesism is another way of, is another form of racism. Uh, so he says that we should be able to move forward beyond what he calls biologism, I think, and speciesism, uh, and respect intelligence as it is, not intelligence as it is connected to the biological substrates that we call our physical bodies. Anyway, um, time is advancing again, so let me ask you the next. We only have about two or three questions here. Um, what's your take on the technological singularity? I think it's, um, I think it's inevitable, but I'm not sure that, uh, I have a lot of confidence in the time frame. All right. I, I mean, I, you, when you say the time frame, you mean the Ray Kurzweil time frame. The Ray, yeah, the Ray Kurzweil time frame. Yeah. And, and so, uh, because I, again, you know, there's so many things that, that will occur over the next 10, 20, 30 years that we have no Ideas to which one's going to to uh, uh, push us over the top, or which one's going to push us into another direction. Um, uh, but I do think it's probably inevitable. I'm not sure that it's going to happen in such a way that we wake up the next morning and basically there's a whole new, you know, there's a whole new beginning, and we can't see what happened in the past. Mm -hmm. I think it's I think it's much more continuous. But there will come a time when those people who exist will not have a memory, okay, for what came before, as much as we don't either, okay, for something, you know, for people that lived in the 1700s <laughs> or in the first century or 10,000 years ago. We think we do, but it's an intellectual construct. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's one of the most general criticisms uh, towards Ray Kurzweil with respect to his timeline. And, and your your uh, uh, presumption is kind of similar to mine uh, on the point of the fact that you think it's much more likely to be a slow takeoff, what Werner Vinge calls a slow takeoff, Yes. Rather than a hard takeoff, which would happen very quickly. Yeah, I, I myself am, am more of a slow takeoff person. Yeah. Um, Joe, the last two questions that I always ask of my guests on the, on this show are always the same. And the first one is, where can people find more about you and your work? Um, well, I've got a, a site, uh, carvalco.com, uh, where I have some essays that I put up. Um, and I've, you know, sort of got some other things that are sort of, uh, of, of, um, creative interest to me, poetry and, uh, and the like. Um, I've got my books posted there and there'll be, uh, at least, uh, two new books coming out. Uh, one is called Law, Science and Technology that should be out sometime this fall. It's going through peer review now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's published by the ABA, and and it's got a, a really so for many of the things we spoke about or talked about today, mm-hmm. um, it, it it addresses science and where it is. It addresses the myriad case and things such as that, and mm-hmm. technology such as the Fourth Amendment. So for those people who might be interested, uh, that book's coming out. And then there's a book of poetry that should be that will be coming out quite uh, oh in the next two months or so. Uh, it's called Behind the Steel. Uh, S-T-E-E-L, uh, and it's, uh, somewhat, somewhat autobiographical, but it's also, uh, you know, covers, uh, uh, the human condition as, you know, poets like to think, uh, that they're masters of, of, uh, of, of analyzing, I guess, and, ex- and expressing in a certain way. Um, so those are two, two places that I would point them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Joe, you've been really a great, great pleasure to to have dinner with and and to uh, interview on my show because you do have that very diverse sort of spectrum of interest from jazz pianist to poet to uh, engineer to lawyer with interest in technology and ethics. Uh, it's been fascinating. So, what's the best way to wrap up our interview? Perhaps you can give us. The most important thing, the single message that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away today. I think that uh, now that I look back on, on my life and I look look you know uh, look ahead, I think that uh, too many times uh, people don't have enough confidence in themselves. Okay, to to reach uh, beyond okay uh, beyond themselves, and I just would like to. You know, encourage people who have ideas to pursue them. Uh, don't be discouraged. There's a lot of naysayers out there. There's a lot of mountains to climb, a lot of obstacles. But I do honestly believe that if someone uh, doesn't quit, if someone doesn't give up and they've got a good idea, go forward. Right? We, need, we need people like that. Joe Carvalco, thank you so much for being with us today. Nick, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah.